So generally, I feel like the NFL draft is one of the most boring things anyone could ever sit down in front of and watch, and I feel that way even to today. But when the Steelers drafted um, Najee Harris just over a week ago, it caught my attention and just about everybody else's attention. Everybody who is a potential, who is hopeful to be draft, has a sort of a draft party where they have family and friends together and they wait for that amazing phone call. Najee Harris had his draft party in the homeless shelter where he, wow, it just affects me. The homeless shelter where he and his mom lived when he was a little boy. Think about that. (laughs) A first-round draft pick who broke all the records at Alabama, spent years in a homeless shelter before being drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers. How should he celebrate now? Let me read you something from the news article. It says, In 2010, Harris lived with his mother and four siblings in a tiny room at the Greater Richmond Interfaith Program Shelter. Kathleen Sullivan, the organization's executive director, told CBS San Francisco his mother was instrumental in getting him and all those children through what would normally be the most horrific experience of their lives. Hmm. Mothers, they're powerful. Do not mess with a mother, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not surprising to me that there's a place in Scripture, it's in Isaiah 49, 15, where God compares himself to a mom. He says these words, he says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on a child she's born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. See, I have carved you on the palms of my hands. Mothers. Every Mother's Day, a pastor looks for a Mother's Day passage, and there's not a lot of them in the Bible. There is a a kind of a mysterious passage about two moms in Galatians chapter 4, and I'd ask you to turn there. There's a Bible app event for this that might be helpful to you as well. I I was looking through my past sermons, and I have most of them on my computer, and so far as I can see, I've never preached on this passage, and there's good reason for that. It is a very difficult passage to understand and a very difficult passage to communicate in 30 to 40 minutes. Now, if you've been going to church all your life, and you've been there for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that's what I think of when I think of Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, like many of us grew up that way, then this passage is familiar to you, and the, and the people involved in it and the concepts involved are much easier for you to understand. But if your attendance had been more casual, perhaps, or you uh, were doing what I was doing when I was a little kid and sitting in the back row on Sundays, uh, you might not uh, have picked it up. So I'm going to try to explain it to you today. I feel like I can do this well in about two hours. I'm going to do about 30 to 40 minutes, okay? So hang on. Before we read it, though, I want to kind of give you a little background. This is a letter written to some people living in a place called Galatia. Galatia is where modern Turkey is today. Those churches that are receiving this letter, those individuals that are receiving this letter, um, they had been planted by Paul. And Paul is the guy who wrote this book of Galatians. He's writing them a letter kind of as a follow-up. Paul had taught them what it means to be saved. And just in case you're wondering, well, what does it mean to be saved? Paul would have taught them that when they, when they see what Christ has done for them, dying for their sins on the cross, and when they have an awareness of their own sinfulness, like, oh yeah, I'm not, not the man, I'm not the woman that I should be. And they turn away from their sin, trusting that Christ's death on the cross pays for their sin, and they follow after him then they're saved. 
And that's what Paul would have taught them, that when you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you're saved. That's the beginning, that's the middle, that's the end, that's the gospel. That's what he would have told them. But something happened along the way. Evidently, they got kind of confused about what that meant, and they actually turned away from Christ. In fact, in the opening chapter, Paul's only maybe half a dozen sentences into the book when he says, I am astonished that you're quickly, so quickly, deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. A different gospel. That different gospel was something that is preached by what history refers to as the Judaizers. Almost sounds like the name of a punk band or something. The Judaizers, you know? It's not. It's worse. (laughs) The Judaizers mixed the Old Testament law with the gospel of Christ. And they spread this kind of false teaching among, especially among non-Jewish converts. That if you're truly a follower of Jesus, then you're going to need to fulfill the law of Moses. Circumcision and all. You've got to do that if you want to be saved. And the Gentile converts, the non-Jewish converts, at least in Galatia, were pretty naive, easily confused. And so they actually turned from trusting in Christ alone to trusting in Christ plus the law of Moses. And that's the whole reason that Paul writes this letter. So with that background, let's start at chapter 4, verse 21, and we'll read through chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. The one by the slave woman was born in an ordinary way. But the son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears the children who are slaves. That is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city, Jerusalem, because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of the promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, now this is it. Listen to verse 31. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom, it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Okay, so let's just try to follow some of the thinking here that's being laid out in the scripture. First, there's two women. Hagar, she is the woman whose son came about by a natural human means. She is the slave woman of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Abraham went with her and gave birth to a son whose name was Ishmael. And then there's Sarah, whoops, then there's Sarah. She is Abraham's wife. She is the one who received God's promise of a son. And through that son, eventually, 
a child would be born in Bethlehem, a savior who is Christ the Lord thousands of years later. She is a wife of Abraham. There's two women, two mothers. There's two covenants as well. He talks about Sinai, Mount Sinai in Arabia, and the other one would be Mount Calvary. You know, it was at Mount Sinai in Arabia where Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments. That's the covenant of Mount Sinai. The other one is Mount Calvary, and it is a covenant of grace in Christ. And although the Apostle Paul does not mention Mount Calvary here, that is where the covenant of grace was established through Christ's death. He talks as well about two cities. He talks about an old Jerusalem that seems to be in bondage and even in bitterness. And he talks about a new Jerusalem from above, from God. And you've got to know if it's from above and from God, it's a good thing. So now on Mother's Day, we're not just talking about, about two mothers. We're actually talking about two different families almost, two different mindsets, two different kind of people. There's, there's a family of, of fallen humans that are in bondage and slavery. And there's a family of God that is free. There's a family of Mount Sinai that is caught up in the law and following the the law and the letter of the law. And there's a family of Mount Calvary that lives in grace. There's a family of the old Jerusalem with stale religion and, and seemingly bitterness. And there's the family of the new Jerusalem made holy by God himself and full of light. Sarah's role in all of this is that she is the mother of Isaac, a promised child. In fact, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, God tells Abraham, you're going to have a lot of descendants. And that is no small thing to say because Abraham's a pretty old guy. And so is his wife. But God, the scripture says, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I love a song by Rich Mullins where he has the line, he says, sometimes I think of Abraham, how one of those stars had been lit for me. Hmm. Two chapters later in Genesis, we read, God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, Sarai, S-A-R-A-I, Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Sarah is the mother of Isaac. Eventually, she's the mother of nations. And God's talking about something, obviously talking about something that is bigger than, more than just genetic offspring. He's talking about spiritual offspring. He's talking about anyone who looks to the Messiah and trusts him for salvation. Since it's Mother's Day, I'm going to refer to those people as the people of Sarah's family. That's not a biblical phrase at all. It's just a Steve phrase to kind of make it fit with Mother's Day. And I want to say that when we're looking at this passage, we learn that Sarah's family is a family that lives in freedom, not in fear. Fear is a really tricky concept. I've been in groups where we're talking together numerous times and, and there'll be one person says, you need to fear God. And the other person says, I don't fear my dad and God's my father. You need to fear. And, the, and that goes back and forth. Should Christians fear God? The short answer is, yeah, we should. 
We should have a reverential fear for God, a profound respect for God, a respect for his holiness, his otherness, his separateness. And we should surely fear his correction if we're acting in a, in a manner that's unworthy of his name. But as believers, we never fear condemnation. We never fear judgment. In our passage, Paul indicates that the slave woman, Hagar, is kind of like the, kind of like the Ten Commandments. Like Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments came from. And God gives us his perspective. Actually, he gives us how the people perceived Mount Sinai when they were there with Moses in the book of Hebrews. God is, is speaking in the book of Hebrews through the author of Hebrews, and he's talking about Mount Sinai, where they got the Ten Commandments. And, and he says this in chapter 12, verse 18. He says, what you have is better. Mount Calvary is better than Mount Sinai. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and it's burning with fire, to darkness, to gloom, to storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. That's fear. That's a profound fear. And it's a good thing to know about. It's a good thing to know that God is holy, that he's separate, that he's distinct, and he desires holiness in us. And when you see that holiness, that otherness of God, it turns your attention to your own unholiness. And if you're left there, whoa, that's a big place of fear. But those in Sarah's family are not left there. Those in Sarah's family are not left there. They come to Mount Calvary. And because they come to Calvary, because they are in Christ, they have a sense of confidence in their place with God. And you understand what the Apostle John meant when he wrote in 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears has not, is not made perfect in love. Confidence comes from trusting Christ. And that confidence never shows itself in arrogance. It exhibits itself in a sort of humble amazement. Well, let me ask you a question. Do we have any Methodists here or people with a Methodist background? Let me see your hand. Hold it up proud. Hold up proud. Yeah, that's good. Well, you have a hymn that is probably my favorite hymn in the whole hymnal. It's my favorite hymn because it speaks of the astonishment that Charles Wesley had when he realized that, that he had a place with God. He says this, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Yeah. It's a humble confidence in what Christ has done. And you have that confidence when you realize that salvation is through Christ alone. The people of Galatia had lost that confidence because they'd been infected with a false teaching that said, if you really want to follow God, you're going to have to do this particular thing, namely engage in the Mosaic tradition. 
And that is not the way it works. Salvation does not come through what you can do in your own strength. Salvation comes through the promise of God. It is a gift to people who are barren of righteousness. I got nothing on my own. It's got to come from Jesus. Paul uses some really strong language when he speaks to the Judaizers. I encourage you to read that on your own, chapter 5. It turns right up to PG-13, if you read that. He has good reason to, because Paul knows that the law can't save. It's completely unable. Paul kept the law as well as anyone, and yet he says, it's of no profit to me. And the person who sits there and says, I'm a pretty good person, I I think I'm I'm probably a pretty good person. I'm okay with God. That person is not part of Sarah's family. You can't be part of Sarah's family until that perspective has changed because confidence that is based in your own goodness is confidence in the flesh. It is self-righteous. None of us like people that are self-righteous. God doesn't like self-righteousness either. It is sinful. It is arrogant. It is offensive to God. And the Judaizers, the apostle Paul regards as trouble causers because our good works cannot save us. Another reason that they kind of make Paul crazy is because they make it unnecessarily difficult for people to find God, to become Christ followers. Circumcision, that's unnecessarily difficult. Christ has done it all. God has gone to immense expense providing our means of salvation. Jesus gave his very life and saying, we need to add something to that in order to really procure salvation, actually to value the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And it adds an unnecessary burden to people who are hungry to follow God. And third, adding to the gospel, it actually (laughs) robs us of the confident joy that should belong to Sarah's family. Those outside of Sarah's family, they are not joy givers. They are joy suckers. (laughs) Jesus describes them in Matthew 23, 4. He says they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, so, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Paul is resisting that with all his might in this letter. Okay, now listen. Children of Sarah, listen to me. You don't have to live in fear. You are called to live in freedom from fear. If you are in Christ... If you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, then you have peace with God and you are safe because Christ took the penalty for your sin, period. And you are well because Christ has made you, spiritually speaking, made you whole. And you don't have to adhere to some legal code written down in ancient times because Christ followed the legal code with perfection and he gives that perfection to you. You don't have to figure out a way to manipulate in your flesh some way to be okay with God. If you are trusting in Christ as your Savior, you are okay with God. He's done it all. And you're born into the family by the Spirit of God. You can live a life of confidence. I need to preach faster. Hey, I had a grandchild. Did you know that? There she is. That's my granddaughter, Lydia. I want to talk to you a little bit about Sarah's life of adventure, the life of adventure for her survival. (laughs) I'm sorry. I really blew that. My granddaughter popping up there just messed up my brain. Let me start over. Good morning. We're glad you're on the live stream with us. 
Sarah's family lives a life of adventure, not just a life of survival. If someone says to me, hey, Steve, how's that new granddaughter you have? And I say, "Um, you know, she's an ordinary newborn. You're like, what? Why Why would you say that? I wouldn't say that. No way. She's extraordinary in every way, right? No one wants to be ordinary. Look at verse 23 for a moment. It's speaking to Abraham and his two sons, speaking of them, I should say. And it says in verse 23, the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but the son of the free woman was born as a result of the divine promise. And now look at verse 29. It says, at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the same now. Do you notice that there's kind of a contrast set up there in both of those verses? Um, in, In verse 23, born of the flesh is being contrasted directly to born as a result of the divine promise. And in verse 29, born of the flesh is being contrasted directly to born by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Hagar's son Ishmael was born the ordinary way. He's just an ordinary birth. He's born the way of all flesh. Sarah's son Isaac is born in an extraordinary way by first a divine power and second by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is, and, and then in saying that, In verse 28, the Bible says, now you, brothers and sisters, are like Isaac. You're children of the promise. You are anything but ordinary. You're extraordinary. And living a life following Christ is an adventure for you. Deep inside, we all kind of long for extraordinary living, right? I mean, that's why people follow celebrities on social media. That's That's why reality shows about celebrities exist. The cult of celebrity is actually fueled by our desire to have an extraordinary life. I want an extraordinary life like them. But are their lives really extraordinary? (laughs) I mean, think about it for a minute. Think of of the people who have walked away from fame. I, I, I think of NFL running back Barry Sanders. He walked away from that career and all the notoriety that went with it in the prime. Johnny Depp, there's a celebrity. Johnny Depp says that fame is a little bit like living like a fugitive right? And then there's Robin Williams. Hmm. It would appear that such lives, although they may be extraordinary, maybe they're the wrong kind of extraordinary. Scripture teaches us that like Abraham's son, like Sarah's son, Isaac, Christ's followers have an extraordinary birth and we have an extraordinary life and our longing for the extraordinary is fulfilled in Christ. How do I know this? I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen it in the lives of others. Let me tell you a couple stories about it. Sharon, Glenn Zorger was sitting right where you're sitting. We had pews back then, and he died Sunday morning. He died right there. And two nurses, one of them sitting right there, you were an ER nurse at the time, is that correct? And a trained EMT who was sitting in the back all came up and could not find a pulse. And we couldn't get him out of there because Glenn's a big boy and those pews didn't move. And so we prayed. And Glenn, it was like he woke up. Do you remember that? What's going on? Right? And and he couldn't figure out what all the fuss was about. We actually had to argue with him to get him into an ambulance to go to the ER to get checked out. That, my friends, was extraordinary. It's like a Super Bowl victory, but better. You see someone come back from the dead. That's better. I know a woman and a man, most of you know them too, who found themselves widowed in the prime of life. 
it is safe to say that the most essential, if not the most important people in their lives were gone. And friends prayed for them. They prayed. And sometime later, we witnessed a wedding right there, right there. (laughs) And they were happily married to one another, this man, this woman. It was extraordinary, like a Hallmark movie, (laughs) but real. Here's a third story. A family we all know was looking to adopt a little girl, and it just was not happening. They had gone through all the social agencies. They jumped through all the hoops. They passed all the tests. They consulted with legal professionals. They kept their appointments. They prayed. Man, did they pray. And their friend prayed. Friends prayed. And then one evening, just this past month, a whole bunch of their friends showed up at their house and gathered around it in a circle and prayed together in one voice. And the next day, the judge made the right ruling for the first time in over two years. (laughs) Their walk isn't over yet, but you got to know they're a lot further down the path than they were a month earlier. That prayer gathering was an extraordinary moment. It was like a Bible story but palpable. See, if you are a follower of Christ, there are extraordinary things happening in your life that you may not notice. And that is to your detriment. (laughs) If you're a follower of Christ and you haven't sensed the extraordinary, there could be a couple reasons for that. Like one reason could be maybe you've allowed this world to give you the definition of extraordinary. And to you, extraordinary means being a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader or dating one, right? Hmm. Is that what it means to be extraordinary? Or maybe you have supposed that what makes that person's life extraordinary is what should make your life extraordinary. And my life can't be extraordinary because I don't have what that person has. I want to tell you that which is extraordinary in my life is not the same as that which is extraordinary in your life. Extraordinary Here you go. New word. Ready? Extraordinariality. Yeah, you can have that one, English teacher. Yeah, use that. Extraordinariality is a personal, tailor-made thing for your life. I love making up new words. <laughs> or maybe, and this is, this is kind of sobering, if you're not seeing extraordinary things in your life, then maybe you're not following Christ as closely as you would like to think. And maybe you just need to examine your walk with God. Whatever the case, as Sarah's family, we're offered extraordinary lives. And third, we're offered lives of abundance. And be careful here, because it's easy to get confused about abundance. Because we can get distracted thinking abundance is all about stuff, money, gadgets, vehicles. That's abundance. When someone starts telling you God wants you rich, just politely walk away. Because what they're showing you is they've only lived in America. Because there are many, many believers who will live and die in abject poverty. And I'm not saying God wants them to live and die in abject poverty. But I am saying that The only interest God has in your finances is twofold. How did you get it? And what do you do with it? Get it justly. Use it benevolently and graciously and generously. So I'm not talking about money when I'm talking about abundance here. I'm not talking about earthly treasures. I I am talking about this gladness of heart that abundantly flows into you when you receive something by grace. I don't know if I can explain this. Let me give it a shot. Have you seen the movie A Wonderful Life? It's A Wonderful Life by Capra, George Bailey. 
If you haven't seen that movie, it's a fantastic movie. In that movie, George Bailey, who hours earlier was despairing near suicide, is surrounded at the end of it by friends and all the money he needs to avoid going to prison. Now, for sure, everyone who loves George Bailey is glad that he got the money so he doesn't have to go to prison. But the beauty of the moment is an abundance that goes beyond a bank account. The beauty of the moment in that story is a a spiritual kind of abundance, an abundance that comes from the favor of God. It is a picture of divine blessing that touches the heart. I cry every time I watch it. Every time I watch it. I just sit there. I don't let Laurel know I'm crying. I look straight ahead, you know, but I feel them going down my cheeks. I'm not crying because, whew, George has the money. Thank God for that. I am crying because I am seeing an abundance of joy brought about by the favor of God. Abundance. It's related to grace. And God's grace is what brings abundance of joy. He pours his grace into our lives in ways that we don't expect, ways that we don't, often we don't even recognize them right away. But when you see his grace, when you see this undeserved favor flowing into your life, the word that describes your reaction is joy. There are other words, gratefulness, happiness, relief. But joy is what embodies all of that. It's a kind of joy that saves. It's a kind of joy that relieves. It's a kind of joy that heals. It is a kind of joy that that mends. It is an extraordinary kind of joy that brings life. God's grace brings abundance of joy. Here's the big grace of God in your life. You have been invited to be part of Sarah's family, not part of the slave woman's family, part of Sarah's family. Christ paid for your sins And when you turn to him asking forgiveness, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You don't have to live in freedom of fear. You're free to have an extraordinary life. You have abundant joy. I don't know this for sure, but I think it's quite possible that the best part of Najee Harris's day wasn't being drafted by the Steelers' storied franchise. I mean, that'd be pretty stinking good. But it might not have been the best part of his day. It is possible that that maybe the most delightful conversation he had wasn't the telephone call with Coach Tomlin, but a different conversation might have delighted his heart even more. I don't know. I don't know him. I don't know if he's a believer. I don't know anything about him. And as much relief as it must have brought him to not be drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals, because that would be a big relief. (laughs) Yeah, my thinking is there might have been a more powerful influence of joy in his life. Maybe the best part of Najee Harris's day wasn't what he celebrated. Maybe it was where he celebrated and with whom he celebrated. And if that is the case, that's abundant living. That is what is available all the time to the children, to the family of Sarah. I want to pray that you would be experiencing it. If you're comfortable doing so, would you stand with me? Let me just ask you a quick question, okay? It's not a question I want an answer to, but I want you to think about it. Just a quick one. Do you feel in your life, do you feel in your life like 
you're in Sarah's family? Have you come to an awareness of your own unholiness compared to God's holiness? And have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ, trusting his death to pay for your sin? And are you following after him? Have you made that transition in your heart? And if you haven't, why not? What are you hanging out with a slave woman for? I want to hang out with the woman of promise. I want to hang out with grace, not with law. You can do that just by talking to God. Just say, God, I don't know how I miss it, but I'm ready. I believe Jesus died for me. I confess my sins to you. I turn from them. I will follow him. Please change me and walk with me. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. And when you have that discussion with God, you're made part of the family. Not just part of Sarah's family. You understand? I'm just using that as a figurative way here to tie it into to Mother's Day. You're part of the family of God. Yeah. And that's a great thing. Let me ask you another question. Have you allowed performance, keeping a set of rules or something, that someone else injected, some Judaizer injected into your life to rob you of the joy and adventure of following Christ? I got to tell you, I feel like John Peters and I grew up like probably 12 years and 30 miles apart from one another, right? And uh, he was nodding. Me too. I grew up with people who were constantly inflicting all this Judaization. There's a new word. I'm, I'm hot today. <laughs> we have an English teacher here. I love to mess with him. Anyway, <laughs> I grew up feeling like all these people were injecting all this stuff into my life that just wasn't in the Bible. And what I want to do is live my faith out of joy for what Christ has done for me. And in that, I will find joy. That's what I want you to do. And if you're, if you're kind of like in a place where your, your Christian faith can become a ball and chain, then talk to God and say, God, I allowed something other than the gospel to become important in my life. And I'm sorry for that. I trust Jesus and Jesus alone to pay for my sin. I love him and I will live like I love him. And when you're living that love of life, when you're living that life of love for him, then that joy comes. Did I pray already? No, I talked. Okay, thanks, John. I'm asking John if I prayed already. Yeah, let me pray for you, okay? God, we're really glad uh, for the joy that comes to us through Christ. We're glad that we can be saved by him and him alone. And we're glad that we can walk in the spirit as we walk in love for him. May this be evident in our life and may joy flow into us by your grace, and out of us as well. Fountains of living water, in Christ's name, amen.